0: Yeah, it's good. Good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, I I want to piggyback what Pastor Mercer said about community groups. You know, I was telling a young guy probably about a year ago, he's just talking about getting connected to church. I said, Look, he said, man, I I love the Sunday mornings, I love the worship, I love the preaching. I said, Yeah, but the blessing of church is not in the preaching or in the worship, it's in the community, it's in the people. And so the gifts of the body are in the people inside these pews right now. So the only way to really experience the blessings of, of what we really have to offer is through those groups that are there. And so there's groups for there's men's groups, women's groups, father's groups. There's a Celebrate Recovery group. There's activity groups. There's all types of groups. So just go through there after service and just pick out a few and, and try a few out. I promise it will bless your life. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our Apostles' Creed series. As you're turning there, um, you know, Sigmund Freud, if you ever took psychology class, you've heard the name S- Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud had this belief or this theory that really the only people that were religious people were people that had good fathers. And he said, they had a good father, they kind of imagine God as a father. Therefore, people that don't have good fathers, they don't, they're not as religious, right? And so there's a professor at NYU, which is New York University, who's a psychologist, wrote a book called The uh, Faith of the Fatherless. And in that book, he has this hypothesis called the defective father theory. Defective father theory. Where he says that Sigmund Freud thinks that the only people that are religious are those that had a good father, then those who are atheists probably tend to have defective fathers or fathers who died or, or divorced or absent or uninvolved or were not part of their lives or maybe they were abusive. And he started connecting all these dots together between defective fathers and atheism. Where he goes through Friedrich Nietzsche, which is the, the guy the, that said God is dead. His father was a Lutheran pastor who died a couple of months before his fifth birthday. David Hume was also a famous atheist, lost his father when he was only two. Atheist Bertrand Russell was known for the essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. His father died when he was four. Jean-Paul Sartre fathers died when he was 15 months old. And Albert Camus has died in World War I. All of these famous atheists fit into this defective father theory. And I would say it's probably true because as the home begins to become begin more broken, Homes become more single mother led or, or those type things. As manhood begins to de, be devalued, we've seen atheism trend. I actually looked for the stats to see what the atheism trends were and what the broken home trends were. And from what I could see, they're almost parallel. And we live in a day and age where the gap between an earthly father and a heavenly father is getting wider and wider and wider. And one pastor, one theologian said it this way. He said, God created us in his image and we've been trying to return the favor ever since, which means we've been trying to make God in our image, make him fit what we think and fit what we want. And even with this defective father theory, it's, we kind of project onto God what our earthly fathers were. So if our earthly father was an abusive, we kind of think of many times that God is this abusive, controlling, ruling figure. If our God was a good dad, or if our dad was a good dad, many times we think of God as a good, good father. And so this theory is starting to unravel right before our eyes as defective father syndrome has hit the household. Now it's hitting the faith. And souls that don't find a father tend to satisfy their need or their craving for a father through really bad replacements, really bad replacements. So you look at homosexuality, many times it's, it's from abuse, sexual abuse of a man, or many times a broken home, or a father that was absent, or a father that was abusive. A couple years ago, I had a young man, young, young man with a young family, with kids, and him and his wife came to my office, sat in my office, and They were struggling with their marriage because he cheated on her with another man. And as we're sitting there processing, you know, she wanted to stay with him, work it out. He was struggling. So we started kind of going through his story, and God gave me a prophetic word. He starts talking about how all these different men came through his life. His mom would be married for a year and divorced and married for a year and divorced. He never had a man. It was always this changing, revolving thing. And I said, do you realize that the only reason you're practicing homosexuality is you're crying out for the love of a man? of a father figure, a man to tell you he loves you. It's part of the defective father syndrome. You can look at the pornography problem. You can look at the divorce and broken families problem. We don't just have all these problems. We have father problems. Father problems that are infiltrating our culture, infiltrating our schools, infiltrating our homes, infiltrating the church. Today, children who live with a single-parent home has increased 300%. Since 1963, violent crime has increased over 500 percent. Illegitimate births have increased 400 percent. Divorces have increased 400 percent. Teenage suicide has increased 200 percent. Drug abuse and addiction has skyrocketed. Another alarming stat is that crime among the very young seven to 12-year-olds, violent crime has increased a whopping 60 percent in just the last few years. Why? Defective father. Syndrome, And then you add the confusion of male identity. Since we we have defective fathers, we we project on all men what we experience through one man. And all of a sudden you start looking at the confusion of male identity. Where today is the hardest time in history to be a man. Everyone has a theory on what a man is and what a man isn't. Now we don't even know what a man is. So how can you be something if you don't know what it is? You have toxic masculinity, bro culture that locks men in perpetual adolescence. There is rape culture where men act as predators and take what they want. There's the portification of everything social media tv music everything is porn, pornified the deep suspicion around men and power as a result of the me too movement gender fluidity where gender realities are seen as restrictive and oppressive their cynicism towards patriarchy and male strength is seen as a threat or something that's evil and our children are needed direction and our souls are crying out for a father figure Almost every problem we see is a downstream problem. You look at the news, the crime you see is a downstream problem. You look at our schools, downstream problems. You look at poverty, downstream problems. You look at broken families, downstream problems. The upstream solution is that we have a crying out of our souls for a father, a good father, a loving father. A protecting father, a providing father, a father who guides us and leads us and loves us and wants what's best for us. We're crying out for it, and we fail to get it here on earth. And so the only solution is we get it eternally from God above. In the Apostles' Creed, the very first line says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Not just any father, but Almighty Father. The perfect father, that's El Shaddai, the language there. The almighty father, the best father, the glorious father, the creator of heaven and earth. St. Augustine said we have this problem with trying to create and make God this father who's kind of like your earthly dad just a little bit better. He said you can't place that on him. He's father as all life comes from him. He's the source of everything created. He's the source of everything living. He's the father of all things, not just your dad who had a better day. And so as we as believers, we say the Apostles Creed, it reminds us that we have a good, good father. Regardless of what your dad was like on earth, whether he was good, whether he was bad, whether he was present, whether he was absent, we have a father in heaven who satisfies our soul. In Romans chapter eight, it says this. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. I say adoption. adoption. Adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are Children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. What Paul is saying here is that every single soul cries out, "Abba, Father," whether they know it or not. Grown men, young men, young women, old women—they're all. Their, your soul cries out, "Abba." father it's crying out for a father to love you it's crying out for a father to take care of you it's crying out for a father to let you know everything's gonna be okay it's crying out for a father to tell you you're gonna make it it's crying out your soul cries out i need a dad it cries out and in the scripture is actually quoting jesus and in there he uses two languages to communicate the need for a father Abba, which is Aramaic, and father, which is in the Greek, basically saying no matter what's your background, no matter what's your ethnicity, your race, where you come from, you need a father. And your soul is crying out for a father. And so when we start looking at this culture around us, when you start looking at crime, it's crying out Abba. You start looking at homosexuality, it's crying out Abba. You start looking at extreme poverty, It's crying out, Abba. You start looking at broken marriages, It's crying out, Abba. You start looking at that kid who's rolling around throwing a tantrum at Walmart because his mom went buying the sucker in the cashier's line. He's actually crying out, Abba, Father. You look at teenage rebellion, crying out, Abba, Father. The whole world is crying out, Abba, Father. And yet we know him. We've experienced him. We love him. We're created with a deep down desire for a father, not just a father, but a father's love, his protection, his guidance, and his approval to let us know we have a dad. And this this doctrine of, of adoption is that he's the father to the Jews first. He's always been a father to the Jews. And then us as Gentiles, we're adopted in that we're adopted into this family that he's such a good dad he doesn't even just dad his own kids. He doesn't just father his own kids. He actually adopts and takes in kids that aren't even naturally his. That's how loving he is. And it comes from the Trinity, which is one of the most confusing doctrines in all of Christianity. But when you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, it helps you understand how good of a father he is. Now the doctrine of the Trinity is this, that God is three persons in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Touch your name and say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now you're Catholic. Beside- Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That He's three gods in one. That the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they're all one in person. And the reason it's important is this. that we have a God who has always been in relationship? He's always been a father. He is God the Father. He, he didn't become a father when Adam and Eve were placed on earth. He didn't become a father when Jesus was born in the manger. He is always been a father. God is love because God is Trinity. If God were just one person, he cannot be intrinsically love. Since for all of, all of eternity, he would have no one else to love. If God were just two persons, he might be loving, but he would be excluding other people. But since God is three persons, he's eternally loving and also inclusive. Being perfectly loving from all of eternity, the Father and Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Holy Spirit. And and one of the old writers of old said it's this waterfall, this cascading waterfall of love. That the Father is the source of all things and the Son is who it flows through. But then it expands out through his spirit. That it's this waterfall of love that if God is love, it cascades down and down and down and continues to flow. And since God has always been a father, his primary way of seeing the universe is through that of a father. If he wasn't in Trinity and he has always been a ruler, then he would reign as a ruler, keeping the rules and maintaining the rules. But that's not who he is. He is a father for all of eternity. Since ever, wherever eternity began, he has always been a father. He's always seen life through a father lens. He'd never had a moment where he was a bachelor or he was single or was by himself. So when he sees the universe, he sees it as a dad. He sees you as a child. He sees the universe as his baby, the whole universe. And the Father declares his love for his son and his pleasure in him at the baptism of Jesus as the Holy Spirit rests on him for the way the Father makes known his love is precisely through giving his spirit. In Romans 5.5, 5, he says he pours his love into us through his Holy Spirit. Which means as this cascading waterfall of love begins to flow, it flowed from God into the Son. Then Jesus shows up and shows what it looks like. And then the Holy Spirit, that love continues to flow. That's why some of the old theologians like John Wimber and pastors like John Wimber said this. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a baptism of love. That's who the Father is. It's his, it's his nature. It's, it's who he, He's never not seeing life through the lens of a father. Now, I don't know about you. Before I had kids, I was selfish. Like, I wanted to sleep. I was talking to Rocky Phillips in the, in the, in the lobby. I said, man, how are you doing? He said, man, I'm just tired. Man, the baby didn't sleep at all last night. She didn't take a nap. She didn't do this. And I thought, man, nobody actually chooses. They say, you know what? I just want to grow up and you know, not sleep for 18 years. I don't want to, you know, no one. when the kids are in elementary school and they ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a sleepless zombie for 18 years of my life. I want to throw all my money at little kids' sports and candy and toys I tear up and don't play with but for two days. No one chooses that, right? So if you haven't always been a father, you start out selfish. You start out wanting things for yourself. You start out, Wanting to do things to benefit you. You start out seeking your own pleasure in what you want. But then when you become a parent, a father specifically, you start living your life sacrificing so you can give your life and give things to those you love. My budget is different since I had kids. My, my life is different. My time is different. Everything flows towards them. And since God has never not been a father, he's never sought his own pleasure. He's never sought his own benefit. He's never sought his own thing. It's always been giving, 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 releasing love, releasing blessing, releasing faith. That's who he is. And so when you see him, he's a good, good father. He's the father almighty. And your father is just not almighty. He's creator of heaven and earth. Everything flows from him. For all of eternity, he was a father. In the Old Testament, he was a father. In the New Testament, he's a father. Now, he's a father. He's a good, good father. And some of you in this room, you need to know that, that you cannot project your daddy issues onto God because it's not fair. I've sat with children, teenagers, who have stepdads, and they have great stepdads, but they'll project their daddy issues from their real dad onto their stepdads. And I'll tell them, I'm like, you get a choice. Like, listen, you get a choice. You can, because you partake kind of the nature of your father. And in the stepfather blended family household, it's this really unique and almost special gift that, that kids get that they're so mad about their real dad. I'm like, look, you get to partake. You may not have your stepdad's last name, but you got your real dad and your stepdad. And you get to partake the nature and character and blessing of which one you choose. And your stepdad is a great guy. He loves God. He loves you. He's taking care of you. He comes home every day and blesses you. He pays for your bills. He pays for your food. He takes care of you. He's coaching your little ball. He's doing all the things you wish your dad would do, he's doing. And so it's not fair for you to project these issues that he has onto this guy. You get to choose which one you submit to and surrender to, and that's the one you partake the blessings of. The same thing in your real eternal life. You can project your daddy issues onto God, or you can choose which one you want to partake the blessings of. Partake the blessings of your dad here on earth, who maybe was destructive, absent, abusive. Or you can realize, this makes me want to serve my heavenly father that much better. Because he's a good, good father. Real quick, I want to give you five quick things why he's a good, good father. Number one is this. He is a father that loves you unconditionally. Unconditionally. That word unconditionally, if you haven't taken English in a while, means without conditions. I mean, he doesn't love you if doesn't love you if you love him back. He doesn't love you if you get saved. He doesn't love you if you be good. He doesn't love you if you obey the commands. He doesn't love you if you obey the law. He doesn't love you if you like Alabama. He doesn't love you if whatever your if may be. There are no ifs with love. In the moment there's an if, it's no longer love. If you tell your wife, I love you if you cook me dinner, that's not love. That's slavery. I love you if you obey me when you tell your kids, that's not love, that's control. Love can contain no ifs. In Romans chapter 8, 37, it says, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's saying there is no ifs, in the universe that can separate you from this type of love. It's unconditional. And unconditional love is the environment where all things that God created flourish. Slavery, nothing flourishes in slavery. It's oppressed. But when there's unconditional, when you free somebody up saying, listen, I love you. I've told Toy this 100 times. I said, babe, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more or less. There's nothing you can do to make me want to love you. My love for you is unconditional. If you were to cheat on me, we'd make our way through. I give it. I build this whole thing up. She says, "That's that's sweet, babe." Say, like, but if you cheat on me, I will kill you or be gone by Monday. <laughs> so I, my love's unconditional. Her has conditions to it. But when you look at the story of the Bible, it's a story of God's love being completely unconditional. And man's love always having conditions. You know How many times he, he blessed Israel, said, I love you. He blesses them, gives them favor. He does amazing things for them. And they just turn away when they think they can get better blessings somewhere else. Yet God continually and continually and continually pursues them with unconditional love. And in your household, in the church, in the kingdom of heaven, all things flourish when it's in the environment of unconditional love. When people know their love, not because of what they've done, not because of what they offer, but because of who you are, it changes who they are. In Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Meaning, Jesus loved you when you were still sinning. So if he loved you then, how much more does he love you now that you're actually following him? If he loved you at your darkest moment, how much can he love you at your brightest moment? See, love is unconditional. It doesn't change based on how you feel or how you perform. It's unconditional. Now, that doesn't mean there's not discipline with unconditional love. That he literally says in Hebrews, he says this. And if you've not forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, for God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Meaning, discipline only works in an atmosphere of unconditional love. If there's not unconditional love, it's punishment. But if there's unconditional love, it's discipline. And it says here, what father would not discipline his kids? Only ones that don't see them as sons. What type of father doesn't discipline his kids when they're not behaving or not performing or not acting out of their true identity? Only fathers who look at them as illegitimate sons. That God loves you enough to not allow you to run off a cliff. He will make sure he corrects you along the way to get you where he wants you to go. Now, the problem is if you're not being corrected and you're not being disciplined, if you're sinning and enjoying it, there's a problem because you may not be a son. You may not be a daughter. Because one of the scariest things in the universe is when God says, Let them go. Let them go. Let them do. Let them run. Let them let them go where they need to go. No, fathers discipline their kids, but they discipline them in the atmosphere unconditional love. Our when we discipline our children, we sit down and hey, I love you so much. I'm not disciplining you because I hate you. I'm not disciplining you because I don't like you. I'm disciplining you because I love you and I see where you're going and you can be so much better than you are right now. Then we'll discipline them. Then we reaffirm that unconditional love at the end. That is only if we're in the house. If we're in the car and they're doing something stupid, we just beat them. Like there is no conversation. (laughs) But unconditional love is the atmosphere where you grow. You grow. And that's why when you, if you come from a denomination where there's no unconditional love, it's all rules-based, 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 nothing ever flourishes there. People don't flourish. The fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't flourish under bondage. It only flourishes in unconditional love. And so he's a good, good father because he loves you unconditionally. You will never find that anywhere else in the universe. He loves you unconditionally. Number two, he's a father that you can trust with your entire life. Like you can trust him with your life, not just parts of your life, not just your Sunday morning, not just, you know, your finances. You can trust him with your entire life. In Matthew 6, he literally says it this way. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns and yet your heavenly father your heavenly father your heavenly father feeds them are you not of more value than they which of you being anxious about your life can add a single hour to a span of life and what why are you anxious about clothing consider the lilies of the field how they grow they neither toil nor spin And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is still in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, do not be anxious about anything. What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That scripture is not one about birds and lilies. That one's about your father. He says your heavenly father is the father almighty, creator and maker of all things. If he made the universe, if he made the birds, if he made the lilies, if he made the mountains, if he made the cows, if he made the waters, if he made it all, and he's your heavenly father, don't you think he can take care of you? So why are you anxious? Why, Why are you anxious? You're anxious because you don't trust your father. Like, could you imagine that if your kids every day were anxious about it, if they're gonna eat a meal? Could you imagine if your kids are anxious if they're gonna be able to go to school with clothes on or no clothes on? No, you want them to trust you. Hey, I'm gonna make sure you at least have what you need. We might not have much, but you'll at least have what you need. You'll at least have some food, it may be ramen noodles. But you're gonna eat, and you may have some clothes. It may not be their designer clothes, but you're gonna have clothes. I'm gonna make sure I take care of you. If they were still anxious, it means they don't trust you. And so when the father says, Listen, look at the clouds, look at the sky. Do you know the sun comes up every single day? Every day it comes up. Do you look at the, the birds? They don't have to, they're not waiting in line at Publix. They're not working at McDonald's. He takes care of them. They always have what they need. Look at the lilies of the field. They're always clothed in amazing beauty. They have what they need. You have a father who you can trust with your life. If you can trust him with your eternal life, you can trust him with your physical life. If he created your body, he can heal your body. If he created your mind, he can heal your mind. You can trust him. Just because you don't see him doesn't mean you can't trust him. Like one the old Native American rites to manhood. When a kid would turn 13, they would take him out, blindfold him, put him in the middle of the woods. and make him last an entire night by himself you test him for manhood. So he put him out there blindfolded in the middle of the woods, sitting on a stump, and he's hearing all these wild animals. Owls, probably pig, the boars, pigs, all these wild animals, scared to death. First time he's not been with his dad out in the woods. Scared to death all night long, pitch black, blindfolded, hearing all these noises in the wood, not knowing how close or how far they are. And when he wakes up in the morning he takes off the blindfold he looks and sees that his dad had been standing there beside him the entire night and some of you need to know that it may feel like it's scary right now may feel like everything's moving may feel like you're blindfolded but he's never left you nor forsaken you you can trust him he is there with you all he's a good good father that you could trust with like number three he's a father you can talk to like you can talk to him the whole point of the 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 Lord's Prayer is it our Father who art in heaven. You know how, how mind-blowing that was to the Pharisees? They would never prayed our Father. They prayed Yahweh. They prayed El Shaddai. They prayed the names of God, Jehovah, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rapha. They prayed the names of God, but they never prayed our Father. And Jesus literally took prayer from this religious ritual to this ceremony that you prayed out in front of people to this intimate conversation with your heavenly Father, with your heavenly Father. He says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my trespasses, as I forgive those who trespass against us. Like, literally, he's changing the game of prayer. And it's amazing to me what access we have to. Do you realize you have more access to God as your father than King David did? And he was a man after God's own heart. You have more access to God in prayer than Abraham had. You have more access to God in prayer than, than Noah had or Jonah had. Any, You have more access. Why? He's your father. And we will talk to everybody else but our Father. You know how amazing it is at any time. I saw a commercial that other day. There's text in therapy now. Where you can text a therapist your problems, text them your issues, and they'll text you back. And it broke my heart that people have access to God as a father, and he's the last person, no contact. Do you realize at any moment, you can stop in your day and just say, Father. Father, you can pour your ha- heart out to him. You can share your issues with him. You can share your struggles with him. He's a father who wants to listen to you. And he's always present and always available. He's never, ever too busy. Yeah, I don't know what your, your home life was, but your dad, it may have been one of those things where he was so busy. Every time you talk, talk to him, I'll talk to you later. Hey, quit. we can talk tonight. Hey, we'll talk tomorrow. Hey, call me tomorrow. It may be, No, God stops everything to talk to his children. Everything. There's an old picture of John F. Kennedy with his son in the Oval Office in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there's a picture where his son came in in the middle of the Missile Crisis and he stopped the conversation with the generals and the heads of state to talk to his son. That's what God can be handling. He can be looking at all these Chinese spy balloons going over the country. And stop because you have a problem. Because your problem to him is bigger than a problem in the White House. Because you're his child. You are his children. He's a father you can talk to. Number four is this. He's a father you can turn to. You can turn to him. You don't have to turn to him at last. You can turn to him first. In the story of the prodigal son. He gets his inheritance. He gets his blessing. He gets his money. He gets what he wants from his dad. Then he wants to go live his life how he wants to. And he realizes that the money doesn't last long because quick money is dirty money. Dirty money don't last as long as clean money. He's off in the pigsty. He starts thinking about, well, even my father's house, the servants eat better than this junk. Maybe if I just go back, my father will treat me as a servant. And he ends up going back home when his father receives him. His father doesn't just receive him as a servant. He receives him back as a son. Even though he squandered everything he had given him everything i've heard so many people tell me you know i i I served god and i I fell off i turned away and you know i you know i can I, i believe god can forgive me but i don't know if i can forgive myself i promise you the prodigal son didn't have any problem forgiving himself when he got received like he got received When they put the coat on him to cover his shame, when they put the ring on him to show him he's part of the family, when they kill the fatted calf to celebrate that his son is back home, it it takes away the shame and guilt from you. It shows you that you're back to where you used to be. See, there's something the enemy does that when we mess up, he convinces us that God may forgive us, but you will never be forgiven yourself. And that's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. There's an incredible story, What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Great book. Tells the story of this little girl in Traverse City. Grew up in a a super fundamentalist household. She became a teenager. The music she liked, her parents would complain about the music she liked. They complained about her nose ring and her piercings. They complained about how short her skirts were. They started complaining about everything, even though they went to this little fundamentalist church. She got to a point where she hated everything in the household. And she decided to run away and the only place she could think of, she's like, if runway run away to California, they'll find me there. And she'd been to Detroit one time with a youth group to go to a Detroit Tigers baseball game. She said, they'll never search for me there. She catches a Greyhound bus, goes from Traverse City to Detroit, Michigan. She gets off the bus, immediately gets caught up in the wrong crowd. A guy in a big old car pulls up, convinces her to jump in, she begins a life of prostitution. Gets caught on drugs because that's how she handled the shame and the pain of prostitution. After a couple of months, she sees a milk carton with her own face on the milk carton saying, have you seen this child? Even though now she looked different, she dyed her hair. She's skinnier. The drugs have taken their toll. She's run out. She's there for more than a year. Gets beaten. She's in jail. She's on drugs. She's in prostitution. Now she doesn't have her pimp anymore. He threw her out. Now she's still turning tricks every night, but she doesn't have enough money for anything. And she finally said to herself, I'm going to go home. And she called from a payphone. No one was at home. She she left a message on her mom and dad's answering She Said, "Hey, this is Susie. If you want me, I'll be back tomorrow around midnight at the bus station." She jumps on the bus. She is panicking. What are they going to think? Will they even show up? Will they be there? She is having second thoughts. She's guessing about leaving. She does all these things. She gets within 15 minutes of the bus stop in Traverse City. And the bus driver says, 15 minutes. And then all of a sudden, the air brakes begin to squeak and squeal. They stop. He said, we're only going to be here 15 minutes. And she starts thinking, I can just stay on the bus and go back. She was scared to death of what her father and mother, these fundamentalist Christians, you know, strict parents, square, what are they going to say and think, and she gets off the bus. She doesn't see anybody. And she walks in this pale, if you ever been to a bus station, pale cinder block room with the plastic chairs that are nasty and stinky, and she walks in, she's about 40 to 50 of her closest family and friends. They have balloons and party hats on the corny little party hats. The little things you blow that never make the right noise. Like they're all there. And they have signs that said, welcome home, Susie. She sees her dad. She runs up to her dad and he hugs her. She says, daddy, I love you. I'm so sorry. And he says, stop. We don't have time for that right now. See, you got a father. It doesn't matter how long you're gone or how far you went. You can always turn back to And that's one of the things the world I think misses. They think of the father as a ruler before he's a father, but a father always wants his kids to come back home. And number five, he's a father who wants to give you his approval. His approval. And out of all the things, I think all of us were wanting the approval of a father in our lives to tell us we're doing good. We want somebody to tell us we're good enough. We want somebody to tell us we're okay. We want somebody to tell us they love us. And one of the most amazing stories I think we lose sight of in Matthew 3, Jesus being baptized even though he didn't need to be baptized. And when he was baptized, immediately he went up for the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father gives Jesus his approval before he ever does anything. He had not healed anybody yet. He had not taught about the kingdom yet. He had not performed any miracles yet. He had not done anything yet. See, God knows that you either work, you live your life from the blessing of a father, or you spend your whole life seeking blessings from other places. And it's like he wanted Jesus to know right now, hey, before you do anything, I am pleased with you. And so the rest of Jesus' ministry, he's working from this approval. I don't need the approval. Of men, when they condemn me, when they mock me, when they betray me, who cares? My father has already approved of me. See, when you have the approval of the Father, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about you. When you have the approval of your Father, it doesn't matter what the kids in school say about you. You're not worried about self-esteem and bullying or self-confidence because my confidence comes from the approval of the Father. That's what's powerful about baptism. It's in the moment of baptism like we celebrated two weeks ago in the moment of baptism It's like the father saying I am well pleased with you And you begin the Christian walk from a place of approval and a place of blessing not one pursuing approval and blessing Religion says no you got to do this this and this and then I'll love you No, you got to you got to do this miracle and do this thing and do this thing do this teaching and Then I'll approve you God starts with the approval which becomes the baseline for the rest of your entire life. And it changes everything. For men, one of the saddest things I see is men that have been looking for the approval of their father their entire lives because he refused to give it to them. I just talked to one of my good buddies, great, great man of God, evangelist, motivational speaker, does incredible things, he said his dad finally got to come to one of his presentations. Now his dad has never once told him good job. When he played basketball, he never once said great job. Even when he started doing the motivational speaking and and preaching, he never told him great job. He said, hey, you know, there's always a job at the factory if this doesn't work out. His dad finally came and heard him speak. They went to eat afterwards and his dad said, hey, You probably don't need to look for that job at the factory anymore. I think you're gonna be okay. And that was his way of saying, I approve of you. But I see other guys who are destroying their marriages because they want a man to tell them they're good enough. They think they can get that in being a workaholic and making more money, maybe sleeping with more women, and they're just looking for a man to tell them, you're a man. You're the man. You're a man. And they will destroy everything around them because this voice in the back of their head from their father when they were six years old, their father maybe passed away, but they're still living with his father saying, hey, you need to work harder. Hey, you're not doing a good enough job. You're not doing this. You have a heavenly father who tells you ahead of time, I'm pleased with you. You don't have to work for the pleasing of some father here on earth. You have a heavenly father who tells you, you are good enough. You are good enough. Why? Because you were in Jesus. You're in Jesus. That's why we say I believe in the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. Because it reminds me every time I say it, he is a good, good father. He is a father you're looking for. I'm going to close, but there's a story. I saw it before the Super Bowl last year. DeLon McCullough is a college football coach, but he had grown up in Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown, Ohio is a pretty rough area. His mom had gotten pregnant in high school. Her parents actually moved her to a maternity home to have the child somebody new. When she had him, she, they took him to an adoption agency. He got adopted by a woman who then went through multiple marriages, never really had a father figure in his life. He was angry. He was frustrated, just never had that father figure. And then he became, started playing football in Youngstown, Ohio. Super athletic. Started getting recruited. Got recruited by the Miami University there in Ohio. And one day, Coach Sherman Smith, who played for the Seattle Seahawks, Sherman Smith shows up in this nice Mercedes Benz. So he wanted to recruit to Miami University. Sherman Smith t- t- told him the ropes, man, I played the NFL. I can help you get the NFL, all the, all the stuff. He said he was enamored with the Mercedes, first of all. But then he enamored this male figure who believed in him. He said he became a close friends with Sherman Smith, actually went to the Miami University to play football. They became his running backs coach. They became best friends. He became a mentor to him, showed him the ropes, taught him how to be a man, all these amazing things. Went to the NFL, didn't make it through, went to the CFL, XFL, all these things, wanted to get back into coaching, called Coach Sherman Smith. Coach Sherman Smith got him a job. He's then helping with the Seahawks. And then all these things are going on. While that's going on, DeLon McCullough, this this. Coach, this young man had been looking for his father figure, and they just changed a law in Ohio where they would open up adoption records. And he found out who his mom was, but there was no father on the birth certificate. So he finally sent his mom this Facebook message saying, "Hey, like, I think I'm your son. Can we meet together?" His mom calls somebody, say, like, "Hey, it could be a scam. It could be somebody from Africa trying to scam me out of money." And so anyway, she meets with him, and they start having this conversation. She's broken. So the son, after 20 some odd years that she had never really seen is right before her eyes. And he said, hey, I have another question. If you can't tell me, I understand. He's like, but I really wanna know who my father is. Cause there's some issues with his child. They're trying to figure out the, the family medical history. And he asked her, what, what's the name of my father? And she said, well, I haven't seen him in forever, but his name is Sherman Smith, which was the coach that was his mentor. And so his dad had been around the entire time. The man he looked up to, the man he looked at as a mentor was actually his father. And it made me think, how many of us are so busy looking for something that we already have? How many of us are looking for the love of a father that we already have? How many of us are looking for the guidance of a father we already have? How many of us are looking for the approval or the blessing of a father that we already have? He's a good, good father. And he's just waiting for you to acknowledge how good he is. If you would just want to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a quick second. We're going to close, but, you know, there's, I think, one or two people that said yes to Jesus at the beginning of service during communion. But I don't want to leave without giving you the opportunity. Maybe you come from a background where God is not a father. He's just God. He's the ruler. He's the king. He's over all things. Maybe you felt like Christianity is this thing where you work to get God's approval. You do enough good deeds, and maybe he loves you. Maybe he'll bless you. But you realize today he's a father. He gives you all that stuff ahead of time. He loves you before you love him. He gives you his approval before you do any good works. He's a father you can turn to no matter how far, how long, or how wide you've ran. He's there. And the only thing you have to do is turn back to him. So if that's you, you say, you know what, today's my day. It's a fresh start with my father. If that's you, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. That's me. I just want you to slip your hand up real quick so I can just look at you and I can pray for you. Anybody else? I'm going to pray here in just a second. But if you raise your hand either earlier or just now, if you would just stop by connection point in the way, I just let them hey, Man, I raised my hand. I said that prayer, to Pastor, so we can get you some resources to help you on your journey. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have our prayer team come forward. If you need prayer for anything else, healing, just agreement, just wisdom, decisions, family, whatever it may be, they'll be down here to pray with you. But Father, we love you. And we thank you that you are a good Father, full of unconditional love, full of blessing and favor and approval that you pour out in us. And I thank you, Father, that no matter how far or wide or long we run, we always have a home to turn back to. So, father, for those that raise their hands, let's pray that you cover them in the blood of Jesus, that you welcome them back into your family with a robe and with a ring and with a fatted calf to celebrate them in your life. And so, Father, with us as a people, we can live from the place of approval and the place of blessing rather than pursuing and seeking and chasing after things we already have. And so, Father, I pray that you bless these, your people, as we believe in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.